Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees, a conversation for those who own, manage or protect intellectual property. I'm David Walsh, a partner and patent attorney at Appleyard Lees. This episode follows the launch of our second Inside Green Innovation Progress Report. Our annual report analyzes patent filings across several areas of green innovation to shed light on the state of progress in the development of green technologies. There was a lot of interest in last year's report. It was picked up by multiple media outlets, and we were also given the opportunity to discuss at several events across the UK. We estimate it reached an audience of at least a quarter of a million people. Joining me today are fellow patent attorneys and report authors, Chris Mason and Paul Bainan. We are hoping to discuss key insights from the 2022 report. Chris, why don't you start by giving some background to this year's report? If you have not heard of the Inside Green Innovation report before, it's essentially a patent filing data-driven analysis of the state of progress in green innovation. And it all came about because we wanted to explore how we as patent attorneys could contribute to the green conversation. The report has a tagline, and that is that we want to try and get behind the rhetoric and shed some light on the actual green technologies that have been developed around the world. We want to try and talk a bit more about solutions rather than just focusing on problems or targets. And we felt that although we're not practicing scientists, as patent attorneys, we do have somewhat of a unique vantage point when it comes to technological development. And we wanted to try and share this vantage point as best we could. This year, we have also added a number of new technologies, including solar, hydrogen, heat pumps and carbon capture. And we also took a wider look at alternative protein beyond cultivated meat to also include plant-based meat and insect protein. Now, David, Paul, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts. I think it's amazing reading the report to think about how varied these technologies are in practice, going from energy production, solar production, to food and all those different types of, of technology. I think it's really interesting to see how all of these are contributing to the green challenges that, that we face as a society. I looked at some of the energy sections in, in a bit of detail, and perhaps I'll kickstart by just talking about batteries for a little bit. And so batteries was one of those sections that we looked at last year as well. And in last year's report, we, th- we saw that lithium iron and solid state filings were both increasing with solid state filings increasing at a higher rate compared to lithium ion filings. What we found looking at the data again this year, we we found that actually lithium ion filings seem to be almost plateauing with perhaps some increases in specific technologies around around lithium ion filings, whereas solid state filings is still very much on the ascendancy and particularly amongst Japanese car manufacturers, it seems to be that's where a lot of innovation is happening. And perhaps it won't be too long until solid state filings um, outranks the lithium ion filings. I was thinking about this over the weekend and I was getting quite interested in renewable sources of energy. And some of the reports I was reading were that there's been a bit of a shift, certainly perhaps in countries like the UK, towards targeting electric car batteries Mm. uh, because of the emissions coming from vehicles compared Mm. to, say, power stations, because some of the reliance on power stations on, say, wave and, and solar power has meant that in terms of Britain's targets for um, CO2 reduction, 
we're almost better hitting the car target than we are hitting the power station target. It's sort of almost in, in balance. I appreciate that's probably not the case across the rest of the world in, in, in general. But the question I had was, are you seeing mainly electric car batteries in terms in this sector or are there more general battery applications or, or do, do the filers direct their applications to both? What we can say is a lot of the really high filers are Japanese car manufacturers. So so in terms of their filings, a lot of them are directed towards specific car batteries. Interestingly, there are a number of Japanese companies who are also making filings which are not directed towards the car batteries and are just towards just standard handheld user equipment, mobile phone batteries, things like that. With the advances in these technologies, I think we're going to see them spill out into, into other fields. I mean, I was reading over the weekend that, you know, one of the things that, that's developed in this area in terms of power plants is the ability to have larger battery stores mm. at, at the power plant. I mean, the main criticism for jumping back to wind wind and solar is the stability of supply. Obviously, if, if people say, well, if the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing. Well, obviously, it's a lot more technical than that. And it's a matter of storing that energy so, mm. so that it can be used when the wind isn't blowing and, and the sun isn't shining. So, so providing that stability of supply and... Clearly, batteries for cars and batteries for power plants are, are different, but the technology feeds one into the other and potentially provides solutions. But you've got this political angle, which is, you know, how big are these plants going to be? And one of the solutions I'm, th I'm hearing about for that problem is to build them on old coal-powered power stations so that, you know, the site's already a, a brown site used for for energy, so you could use it as a battery storage. And it's also got the supply lines that feed into the grids and if it can piggyback on electric car batteries or vice versa, um, I mean, all, all to the good, I think. One really interesting technology which could also be part of this conversation in terms of energy storage and emissions coming from transport is hydrogen. We've done a report on hydrogen this year and we tried to cover it through a large part of the life cycle from generation of the hydrogen gas to its use in, in various sectors. And I say it could be part of the conversation for energy storage because there is a growing interest in using excess renewable energy to generate hydrogen through electrolysis to produce green hydrogen. You could see that in some ways as an energy storage medium because you can then release that energy through a hydrogen fuel cell. Hydrogen fuel cell powered electric vehicles are you know, technologically feasible. Although the file, we found the patent filings for the fuel cells themselves have dropped off significantly over the last 10 years, there has been an uptick in filings for plying fuel cells in vehicles. So the, the, the kind of the balance of the system components around the fuel cell itself have been seeing uh, quite a bit of an increase in innovation. So I'll, I guess the question is there in, well, is hydrogen going to dominate? Are we going to see um, hydrogen being used to, to store excess energy generation through renewal, renewable methods? Are we going to see hydrogen fuel cell cars on the roads in the future? I think possibly the former more, more than the latter, from what I can see. I think there are significant barriers to hydrogen cars. I think there's an awful long way to go there, and it's going to require cooperation from regulators and, and government incentives, whatnot, to make that a reality. But I think that, and we have seen this in the patent filings, more likelihood in the heavier transport sector, the buses, the trains, light aircraft and marine perhaps. So we might see hydrogen fuel cells uh, becoming more common in those sectors, uh, hopefully sooner or later. Do you think, Chris, that's to do with that they're more suitable to bigger vehicles? Or do you see it more as it's a start for that technology, which then might spill over into 
into cars or could it be either? I think both are true. I think I think it's a start. I think if it can establish itself and get economies of scale and you know proof of concept of the of the technology and the, and the ecosystem um in those kind of quite not niche or obviously massive areas of industry but I, i'm sure the end goal for a lot of these hydrogen producers and, and technologists will be the mass car market i think there's a big issue with storage of hydrogen in a car how can you store enough hydrogen such that you don't need a huge number of refueling stations and it's not just about being able to store it safely you've got to be able to meet tighter requirements for for cars you know, reliability weight volume all those kind of factors come into play and make it i think more complex fitting a hydrogen storage and fuel cell into the family car than it is fitting it into a multi-ton truck i wonder if it's a good time to bring in another technology in this area like carbon capture that touches on hydrogen at the moment gray hydrogen dominates and that's you know hydrogen produced predominantly through steam reforming of natural gas and the carbon dioxide and or whatnot or the the emissions produced from that are, if they're just released into the environment then then that's gray hydrogen another part of the hydrogen innovation area is blue hydrogen and how do you turn gray hydrogen to blue hydrogen while well, you capture the emissions and i think the the hope is that we will move predominantly to green hydrogen in due course but i think blue hydrogen and the use of carbon capture is a, is a stepping stone on the road certainly there's also technology which absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere so we're hitting it from both uh, both directions um, and there is some technology in direct carbon capture it's a simple solution if we could just absorb all the co2 from the atmosphere then we can just carry on and not and not change anything and carry on with our economic development unhindered i don't think that's at all realistic and we need to reduce co2 but but there is technology out there that can remove the co2 and uh, the latest one of the latest reports i read was you would need one in three power stations to be a co2 capture plant i mean the cost would be astronomical it's not that it's not achievable but it be astronomical so so lowering that co2 as well as capturing it um is, is is clearly the way forward but technology has has a habit of eventually getting costs down and becoming becoming more efficient i think direct carbon capture is interesting isn't it because you're obviously battling with the much lower concentration of carbon dioxide in the air than compared to when you're trying to capture emissions from power stations and it looks like we're finding from the data that we saw that that perhaps is leading towards a realization that we're going to need different technologies. So I think the the power stations rely a lot on, on aiming based filters. And I think the feeling is that perhaps that technology needs to come a long way to, to make it you know economically efficient for direct carbon capture. And we're seeing new areas of technology emerging, uh, algae is potentially a, another alternative to, to amine filters for direct air capture. And I think it'd be exciting to see how, how that area develops. It's interesting, isn't it? That looks like since 2015, there's been a steady increase in, in the number of filings in this area. It feels like a really, really positive trend for companies to be innovating, innovating in this space and, and long may it continue. I think what I find really interesting looking across the sections of the report is we're seeing a large peak in the turn of the millennium between 2000 and 2010 across several areas really where you see sudden escalation dramatic escalation in filing numbers 
quite a sharp peak and then quite a sudden drop off into the early 2010s. I mean, I suppose people might say, well, it was the you know, the global economic climate at that time, perhaps, perhaps. But I think in, in some areas, and maybe maybe this brings us on to solar a little bit, um, it was interesting to to learn more about the, the solar shakeout going into 2010. And again, we saw a massive escalation in filings leading up to 2008 or so, and then, and then a very significant drop off. You're absolutely right, Chris. I think um, 2010 seemed to be the peak for solar or photovoltaic filings in their own right. But it's really those those ancillary components going around it where we're still seeing we're still seeing a lot of increase. And yeah, I think we're starting to see some smaller companies get active in that field as well. One perhaps aspect which which cropped up in solar, but is is applicable to almost all technologies that we see. And and from a practical point of view, from a working point of view now, pretty much every Every invention that ends up on my desk, I usually get asked the question or, or I get a comment that, oh, obviously we could we could do this invention using AI as well. And and we saw that we saw that crop up in, in solar in that a lot of um the recent filings that link AI and solar, there seems to be a recent uptake in filings for solar that included an AI aspect to it. And then similar to heat pumps. Heat pumps had a had a bit of a bump in in 2010, and has perhaps seen a bit of a gradual decrease since then. What I find interesting is whether we think those drop off in filings, because we look at filing data, and you see a massive drop off, and you think, oh, people are moving away from that area. Perhaps that could be the immediate reading, but actually, it's it's more subtle than that. I think, isn't it? It's not necessarily that that area the, uh, of technology is dead. It could be that it's just reached a viable level of development such that the technology is there now for these things to be economically produced. People can make really good businesses out of them. But there's now diminishing returns in further R&D work because the technology yeah. is good enough to produce for mass market production and, and the mass market use. It doesn't mean innovation goes away, of course. I think, Paul, you mentioned it, and we talked about it for hydrogen perhaps as well. Although the, the fuel cells, the solar panels, and, and the heat pumps are mature technologies that, that, that work really well, I'm sure they can be improved, but we're talking about iterative improvements. And that leads to a drop in patent filings for a while. But it doesn't it's not the end of innovation. Like again, for, for those three areas in particular, we've seen balance of system peaks, haven't we, in, in, in the last couple of years, whether mm. for adapting these components for use in, in vehicles or like you say, with solar cells, um, introducing AI or or sun tracking uh, mounting systems or or whatnot. So I think it's really interesting that we've seen similar development peaks or, or trends for those three areas of technology. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the difference between well, arguably research and development there, I think, aren't you, Chris? I mean, because I'm seeing the same trend with plastics recycling as well, that there was a peak in filings around the end of the 90s, beginning of around 2000, which then slowly dropped off, but which is then uh, really shot up again in the last three to four years. Um, and actually, the activity now is 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 higher even than it was in 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 two thousand. But I think potentially that relates to the development of technology. Scientists within companies and within universities are realizing there's a need for some technology, and they look into it and innovate. But that doesn't necessarily result in in development and, and commercialization. Um, and that can be political, or it can be just purely market market demand. But but when you see that second peak, probably looking at a developmental peak and developments tend to come from real commercialization, solving problems, 
you know, relating to installation or, or actual use of the technology um, that, that's necessary to satisfy customer demands and, and users' demands. So I think we are seeing some significant de developmental uh, peaks in some of these technologies. You know, the report shows some quite interesting trends in improving the properties of biopolymers. Fundamentally, biopolymers haven't got the same properties that um, the bespoke properties that a lot of these polymers have. And part of the, part of the reason we have, we have to separate our polymers is because we, we use different polymers and different polymers are uh, for different, different applications. You will be using biopolymers in, in your home, but they tend to fall down on some of their properties. A lot of the filing activity that we're seeing in the, and showing in the report is, is say the butylene-based uh, biopolymers, which are improving the, the properties of these biopolymers. Then you can just take them to the tip and they'll biodegrade within, within a reasonable, reasonable time frame. One thing I thought was interesting was the uh, polyactic acid, which is derived from plants. That seems to be a very neat way that is clear, clearly green, clearly has some has some benefits. And I thought it was this could be an interesting link onto the um, cultivated meat and the and the plant based meat alternatives, which we which we also focused on. And perhaps we could we could talk about how plant based materials could provide various solutions to various green problems that we have right now. I think plant based meat is the furthest ahead of the alternative protein technologies. I think we can say that for sure. You know, looking at the filing numbers, the available products on the market, it's ahead of it, perhaps the other areas that we looked at. But I don't think we can say that it's now on a an obvious continually upward trend. I think at the moment, the sector is encountering some turbulence. We're seeing previously industry leading startups like Beyond Meat struggling a little bit over the last year. Their share price has dropped by about 80%, I believe. And there are some, I think, consumer concerns about the actual nutritional content of, of some of these plant-based alternatives. And I think it, it comes across the, the real tricky balance that these alternative protein industries have of managing nutritional content against cost of production. I'm both... Um scientist lawyer but a food lover and we can't finish this discussion without talking about insect protein based based food um, and where does that sit on your spectrum of uh, food loving from the food lover in me i'm, I'm <laughs> slightly worried by the fact that we see a much higher number of priority filings for insect protein than we're seeing for plant protein <laughs> um, but um, i don't know if i should uh, be preparing myself to to be eating insects anytime soon. I think number one is it's just going to be an option, David. It's not, no one's going to force it. <laughs> I don't think, it's not going to be to the exclusion of, uh, of all other options. It's um, most broadly speaking, we're seeing a highest level of filing for insect protein out of the three areas of alternative protein that we looked at. I think insect protein is a really fascinating area and it's the first time we've looked at it for this report. Obviously it's, it's more of a traditional protein source in some of the Asian countries perhaps. Uh, certainly more so than, than traditionally it has been in, in the West. Um, I know that there's less regulatory issues around whole insects, but I don't think that's where the industry is going really, or certainly not in terms of providing it as an alternative protein source for the mass market. We're talking about processed insect protein, and that brings in a whole different range of regulatory issues that are still, you know, at best unclear. Um, at worst, outright bans, but um, we are seeing some progress. I know the EU is starting to become more receptive uh, to granting approval for some processed insect 
protein powders and, and, and whatnot. Again, it feels like there's some momentum there. There's certainly momentum on R&D. We can see that quite clearly from the charts in our report and the filing, patent filing trends escalating upwards and not just, I mean, South Korea is, make, is making a big push. Um, they've got na national strategies that I think include um, alternative protein technologies. Um, so we're probably going to see state support there. And that's no doubt going to be followed and is being followed by very high, you know, world leading filing numbers. But it's not just South Korea where we're seeing a growth in, in filings. We're also seeing it in Europe and in the US. Again, quite significant, well, noticeable growth in, in those areas too. Well, thanks very much, guys. We had a really interesting discussion on energy and on materials, uh, particularly plastics, and on on food. Uh, we, we've looked at as as industry is looking at replacement technologies or improving existing technologies to to reduce the level of CO two in, in in the atmosphere and to make our planet more sustainable. Something we can I think we all want to pass our our world onto onto future generations and. Hopefully this report will play a small part in, in showing how in industry is investing in research and development in this area and, and that's reflected in the, the latest patent filing data which we've tried to bring out in our report. So thanks very, very much to Paul and to Chris for your time this morning and, and to our listeners for listening in. Yeah, thanks David, thanks Paul and thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, th thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Leagues. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialists to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyard Lees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com.